Section 7 of the Bible Under Trial This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Bible Under Trial by James Orr Settled Results in Criticism, Parts 1 through 3 Roman numeral 4 no argument is more frequently employed to silence objection to modern critical theories than the alleged agreement of competent scholars as to the main results of their criticism. The labors of over a century have issued in certain settled results, which it is held to be folly and presumption for non-experts any longer to question. Harnack's words, quoted in a previous paper, show that the same temper is carried into New Testament criticism, and embody his vigorous protest against it. I have ventured to enter a demurrer against this summary method of foreclosing a controversy of such magnitude. I have pointed out that, even if the results could be regarded as settled, there is a prior question to be answered. How are they settled? I have tried to show that, from the first, a pronouncedly rationalistic strain has entered into this criticism and that the methods it employs are not such as to command our confidence. If further proof were needed of the predominantly rationalistic character of the movement, it could be furnished abundantly from the historical sketches in Professor Foster's recent work on the finality of the Christian religion, in which the fact is dwelt on with approval. Pages 94, 114, etc. Without dwelling further on this, I come now to deal with the other two questions I proposed, which raise a direct issue. Are the results settled? And if they are, should they be settled? Part 1 It is desirable, first, to have one or two specimens of the kind of assurance expressed. I take these from recent writers already cited. Mr. Addis, in his book on Hebrew religion, under the heading of Results of Criticism Assumed, writes, On many questions of capital moment, such, for example, as the dates at which the documents composing the Pentateuch were written down, the date and authorship of most of the prophetic books, there is practical unanimity among men whose knowledge entitles them to judge. This agreement has been slowly attained. It has been severely tested by discussion, nor is there the slightest ground for thinking that it will ever be seriously disturbed. Pages 11 and 12. He admits that there are other matters, as for example the extent to which the genuine works of the prophets have been interpolated by the scribes, which are still shrouded in uncertainty, a serious qualification of the alleged agreement. Let us listen next to Professor Peake in his Manchester lecture on The Present Movement of Biblical Science. We need not hesitate, he says, to claim that many assured results have been reached which the future is not likely to reverse. After giving an enumeration which includes the analysis of the Pentateuch into four main documents, the identification of the law on which Josiah's Reformation was based with some form of the Deuteronomic Code, the compilation of that code in the reign of Manasseh at the earliest, the fixing of the Priestly Code to a date later than Ezekiel, the highly composite character of some parts of the prophetic literature, especially the book of Isaiah, the post-exilian origin of most of the Psalms and large parts of the book of Proverbs, the composition of Job not earlier than the exile and probably later, 
the Maccabean date of Daniel and the slightly earlier date of Ecclesiastes, he adds, On all these points it would be possible to name dissentient voices, but, speaking generally, these results would probably secure the adhesion of most Old Testament critics. This no doubt looks imposing. The simplest way of testing it, I think, will be to give a brief, unvarnished sketch of the actual course of development and present position of criticism on the subjects named. I have noted already the judgment of Winkler and his school on the Wellhausen theory of religion, on which so much of the criticism depends. But I take here the literary criticism on its own merits. Probably, at the end of the survey, the reader may be less reminded of assured results than of the famous picture in Dante's poem of an eager crowd circling round and round in pursuit of a whirling flag, which perpetually eludes its grasp. The critical chase of certainty in results seems to me well-nigh as hopeless. Part 2 Criticism began, as is well known, with the observation of the alternation of the divine names, Elohim, God, and Jehovah, E.V., Lord, in certain sections of the book of Genesis up to Exodus 6. Soon, literary peculiarities were discovered distinguishing these sections, named respectively Elohistic and Jehovistic. By and by, it was noticed that this distinction did not cover the whole field. Certain parts of the Elohistic narrative lacked the literary marks of the other parts, especially after chapter 20, and closely resembled the Jehovistic portions in everything but the use of the divine name. Criticism now took the bold step of separating these newly distinguished parts and erecting them into a separate document, known thenceforth as the Second Elohist, or E. Hitherto, the Elohistic document had been regarded as a complete, continuous history, and the Jehovistic parts had been viewed as fragmentary and supplementary. Now these also were regarded as forming a continuous document, thenceforth designated J. As far back as the days of Deveta, Deuteronomy had already been separated from the rest of the Pentateuch and, on grounds of style and law, relegated to the age of Josiah. This is known as D. Criticism had now fairly entered on its speculative stage, and the four documents, which rank among the assured results, are well in sight. There is the original Elohist, latterly known as P, a priestly work, to which the framework of the narrative in Genesis and the Levitical laws belong. There are the popular so-called prophetic narratives of J and E, and there is the Josianic prophetic law book D. As to age, up to this time the Elohistic work, P, was regarded as beyond question the oldest of all, either Mosaic or, in its legal parts, largely Mosaic, at latest of the days of Samuel or Saul. J and E were dated about the days of the undivided kingdom or shortly after. Then came the volte face of the Graf school, by which the settled results of the previous period were precisely reversed, and the whole Levitical code was lifted down bodily from the beginning to the end of Israel's history, the narrative part with which it was connected soon following. The Elohistic document, from being the oldest of the four, now became the youngest. It was as if a man who, before stood on his feet, 
was suddenly turned over and made to stand on his head. The result was naturally a considerable internal derangement. Vision was affected, and things generally took on an upside-down look. The history was reconstructed in a new perspective. The Mosaic period, as Doom said, was wiped out. Mosaic laws, the tabernacle, the Aaronic priesthood, the Levites, Passover laws, etc., became fiction. As Colenso put it, for all those who are convinced of the substantial truth of the above results, the whole ritualistic system, as a system of divine institution, comes at once to the ground. The whole support of this system is struck away when it is once ascertained that the Levitical legislation of the Pentateuch is entirely the product of a very late age, a mere figment of the post-captivity priesthood. J and E were now commonly put in the time of the divided monarchy, say from 850 to 750 BC, according to which was put first, i.e. before Amos. Further, as the two were so closely united, they were assumed to have been combined into one work, J.E., sometime before their final union with P. after the exile. It might be supposed that, having reached the bottom in this inversion of previous theories, criticism would now indeed settle and be at peace. We are only, however, as we soon discover, at the beginning of new developments. The four documents, which we are told are among the assured results, begin themselves to split up and detail into a series under each denomination, which effectually disposes of their unity. The original J disintegrates into a J1, J2, J3. E similarly into an E1, E2, E3. P in Cunin's hands gets the length of a P4, and there is needed for the processes of union a like series of redactors, R1, R2, R3, etc. As history knows absolutely nothing of these hypothetical entities, they can be multiplied to any extent at pleasure. The paragraphs, verses, or fragments of verses to be assigned to each are now picked out and exhibited as they are, e.g., in the Oxford Hexateuch. It is easy to see as this process goes on that we are on the verge of fresh transformations. The members of the series so flow together that it speedily becomes impossible to maintain their identity. Accordingly, as the next development along this line, we have the dropping of individualities altogether and the courageous conversion of the J, E, P, D, and R series, our four documents, into schools, which extend downwards no one can quite tell how far. Thus, as in the ancient Heracletian philosophy, all flows. How any reasonable mind is to figure to itself these various schools, of whose existence, remember, we have no evidence, with their several characteristics in the use of the divine names and otherwise, flowing on side by side without mingling within the narrow limits of Judea, the northern kingdom is out of the question after 722 BC, and afterward in the exile for some centuries is not explained, and I do not stop to inquire. Is the end even yet reached in this singular evolution of assured results? It does not appear so. At an early stage, the J and E analysis was carried forward from the Pentateuch into the book of Joshua, and for the criticism of the Pentateuch was substituted that of the Hexateuch. 
But might not this process be carried still further, into the book of Judges, into Samuel, into Kings, when schools come on the scene, even through the whole Old Testament? So many scholars think, and this seems to be the direction in which Old Testament criticism is now moving. I cite an illustration, a significant passage from the Abel Montalban theologian before quoted, M. Westfall. He is speaking in the name of Old Testament science on the application of the historical method. All the documents of the Old Testament, he says, will be submitted to a rigorous exegesis and criticism relative to their contents, their date, and their author. This work will lead to our establishing, for example, that the historical books of the Old Testament, from Genesis to Nehemiah, are not, as it seems after the division introduced by the rabbis, a series of 16 or 17 distinct works, written successively by different authors, but that they constitute, in reality, two great sources of history, ceaselessly amplified, enriched, and extended, which, in their first pages, blend their narrations and proceed, both of them, from the recital of the creation of the world to the last tribulations of the kingdom of Israel and of Judah. The two sources are the prophetic and the priestly. Part 3 Still, within even these very wide limits now reached, may it not be affirmed that there is, after all, a large basis of agreement among the critics? To test this, I propose to look at some of the crucial points more closely. I may, however, here reproduce from my own volume two sentences from leading critics which are as eloquent on the point as anything I can hope to advance. Professor Couch of Halle, in the front rank of Old Testament scholars, makes this remarkable statement. In the Pentateuch and the book of Joshua, it is only with regard to P that something approaching to unanimity has been attained. Cunin, another foremost authority, says of J.E., As the analysis has been carried gradually further, it has become increasingly evident that the critical question is far more difficult and involved than was at first supposed, and the solutions which seem to have been secured have been, in whole or part, brought into question again. Take now some examples on the leading issues. The simile of the whirling flag may often recur to us as we proceed. On nearly every point in regard to the alleged J and E documents, on date, place of origin, relation to each other, earlier or later, extent, it might easily be shown that leading critics are completely at sixes and sevens. Confident statements are often made, for example, that J is Judean in origin, is about a century older than E, etc., but these positions are directly challenged by others equally imminent. The question of priority, Mr. Addis confesses, is still one of the most vexed questions in the criticism of the Hexateuch, yet much depends upon it. So marked again is the resemblance between the two supposed documents that it is admitted to be hardly possible to distinguish them after the criterion of the divine names fails in Genesis. What one critic attributes to J or E, another frequently gives to the rival source. An outstanding example is Exodus 21 through 23, which Wellhausen, Westfall, etc., assigned to J, while commonly it is given to E. On the question of extent, the divergence of opinion is acute. Some can trace the presence of J in Judges, Samuel, 1 Kings, with perfect certainty. Others deny it. 
Wellhausen and Starnagel maintain that J is wholly absent even in Joshua. So, while many are lowering the age of the documents, a critic like Koenig carries up the date of E, which, with many, he puts before J, as far as the age of the judges. Or take the still more important example of Deuteronomy. How does the case stand with regard to unanimity here? Many put the origin of the book in the reign of Josiah, often in combination with the hypothesis of fraud. Others avoid this by carrying it back to the reign of Manasseh, a view to which Cunin says there is fatal objection. Others go higher still and place it hypothetically in the reign of Hezekiah. A minority, pointing to the absence of all traces of the divided kingdom, carry it up to a date much nearer Moses and hold the kernel to be Mosaic. On the other hand, a powerful current has set in toward disintegration. Dr. Driver ably defends the unity of the book. Cunin upheld the unity of chapters 5 through 26. Wellhausen, with many others, divided the hortatory and legislative parts and took the original book to consist only of chapters 12 through 26. Now, however, the book is handed over to the mercies of a Deuteronomic school, and its disintegration proceeds apace. The Code and its envelopments, says the Oxford Hexateuch, homiletic and narrative, hortatory or retrospective, must thus be regarded as the product of a long course of literary activity to which the various members of a great religious school contributed. Roman numeral 2, page 302. On this view, the law book of Josiah is reduced to chapters 12 through 19. Page 95. Have we even yet attained to assured results? Not in the least. Within the last few years, still another theory of Deuteronomy has appeared, that of Stauernagel, which cuts up all previous theories by the roots and starts off on quite new lines. This scholar, whose views have already obtained influential support, thinks the critics all wrong in dividing the books into hortatory and legislative sections, and proposes a new division crossways into sections marked by the use of the singular pronouns, thou, etc., and sections marked by the use of the plural, ye, etc. I do not believe that the new theory has any more solid foundation than the others, but it assuredly casts an interesting light on the claim to settled conclusions. A glance must now be taken at the so-called priestly code. This is the key position of the Wellhausen theory, and here, if anywhere, the critics may be expected to hold together. But while there is naturally more semblance of agreement on the surface, arising from the marked peculiarities that distinguish the P-source, there is found again keen difference on the matters which are most essential. One question is as to the extent of the source. It is found, for example, in Joshua? Most critics say yes. Wellhausen says no. He regards the main stock of the priestly narrative as ceasing with the death of Moses and denies the identity of the peahan in Joshua with that of the earlier books. A more fundamental question is as to the unity of the source. Graf, the founder of the school, till his death declined to admit that the P sections ever existed as a separate, independent work, and the disintegration of the writing which has been going on ever since, P1, P2, P3, etc., is a practical endorsement of his opinion. The so-called priestly narrative, in fact often a mere thread, is, especially after the hypothetical E has been cut out of it, 
a broken, unequal, fragmentary thing, which anyone looking at it might see could never have subsisted alone. Its interrelations with J and E are so close that it needs them, and they need it throughout. Footnote. For example, P alone records the making of the ark, Genesis 6. J records Noah's sacrifice, Genesis 8.20. But P alone tells of his going out of the ark, verses 15 through 19. The promise of Ishmael is given in J, Genesis 16.11. But P records his birth, verses 16 through 17. P alone records the ages and deaths of the patriarchs, etc. End footnote. The state of opinion about the priestly code as respects agreement is best seen by looking at that interesting section of it commonly spoken of as the law of holiness. This is a portion of the law, Leviticus 16 through 26 mainly, which critics, with much plausibility, regard as having at one time formed a code or summary of Levitical law standing by itself. It is acknowledged also that the closest relation subsists between it and the book of Ezekiel. What is that relation? Originally, it was confidently held that Ezekiel must be the author of the code. Most now, putting it later, explain the resemblances by the violent hypothesis of an imitation of Ezekiel. Dr. Driver and many others see clearly that it must have existed before Ezekiel and been used by him. Other leading critics discern plain traces of its use in Deuteronomy. Older scholars like Dillman, and some more recent, ascribe to it a very high antiquity. Such views, even that of its antecedents to Deuteronomy, this the more the further we carry the date of that book back, are fatal to the theory of a post-exilian origin of the law. Here also disintegration is active, H1, H2, H3, etc., but the most curious feature is the tendency to enlarge the scope of this remarkable section of the law once freedom is gained by making it post-exilian. First one part, then another, legal and historical, is given to it till it assumes quite imposing proportions. A single quotation from the Oxford Hexateuch will illustrate this singular process of repristination. Other scholars, again, like Verster, Cornell, Vildebor, further proposed to include within it a considerable group of Levitical laws more or less cognate in subject and style. Are all these passages to be regarded as relics of P.H.? In that case, it must have contained historical as well as legislative matter on an extensive scale. It must have related the commission to Moses, the death of the firstborn, the establishment of the dwelling, and the dedication of the Levites to Yahweh's service. Even if the latter passages be denied to P.H., the implications of Exodus 6, 6 through 8 suggest that the document to which it belonged comprised an account of the Exodus, the great religious institutions, and the settlement in the land promised to the fathers. Roman numeral 1, page 145. Does criticism not seem here to be in the way of working out its own cure? Transpose this source, as I think we are compelled to do, from a post-exilian to a pre-Deuteronomic age, and have we not very much our old Pentateuch back again? End of section 7